Happy Father's Day. <laughs> My grandson asked me the other day, Poppy, are you going to be alive when I'm an adult? <laughs> Isn't it amazing what kids think, you know? I said, well, he's a thicker, and you know, Poppy's got some gray hair. And uh, I said, I hope so, Gabe. I hope so. Um, some of you I know are missing dad today, your father, and uh, I know the Lord is with you today and helping you to comfort you. I'm very blessed. Uh, my wife's father's with the Lord. My dad is still here, and uh, in fact, he's going to come to the 11 o'clock service, so I'm looking forward to seeing my mom and dad. Uh, one, one, one of my dad's stories, and then we'll get serious. Um, my first car when I was about 17 years old was a 68 Chevy Malibu. That sounds kind of nice, but this one wasn't nice, okay? Uh, <clears throat> it had the best days of its life was behind it. And uh, I remember pulling in and the exhaust, whole exhaust, it was rattling and noisy. And I came in, my dad's a machinist by trade. He's a mechanic. He can basically fix anything. So I went into the house. I said, hey, dad, um, my car is, something's wrong with it. Would you come look at the exhaust system? And so I remember going out and he got up underneath it and he started like yanking a little bit on a, a pipe and the whole exhaust system fell off. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's laying on the driveway and I'm like, oh no. And, and he come out, I still remember his words. He says, well, that's probably enough for today. <laughs> I had somewhere to go that night, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but no, he got he got me fixed up, and like he he's always there, my earthly dad. I have a wonderful earthly father. I'm very thankful for that. I was thinking as I was preparing this message how much computers have changed our lives, you know, as technology tends to do. Um, back when I started in the Christian Missionary Alliance as a worship pastor in 1992, um, I had a typewriter in my office. And uh, sometimes there was no projection of words, of course. And we had hymnals. Uh, those are, for those of you who don't know, it's a book about this big. <laughs> and you open it up and it has songs in it. Okay. But we loved the hymnal too, and we loved doing the hymns. And, uh, but we also did some songs, uh, some newer choruses at the time. And I remember typing uh, song sheet masters on my typewriter. And that's not good news for me because I'm a two-finger typer. And uh, I'm, I've been about... 25 years down the road now, so I'm doing it a little better, but back then it was painful. Plus, I used, I used a lot of paper, a lot of whiteout. It was um, every day I'd leave the office in my wastebasket had all this crumbled paper. I've planted trees since, so don't, don't uh, worry. But then the computer came. Oh, that was awesome. And I started to be able to work and do correct things on there. Uh, but with any technology uh, that has many benefits, there are also some not-so-good things that come with it. I think we can all admit that everything about the Internet and, uh, has not been a good thing for us. But um, even email, even, you know, what a wonderful thing to be able to... I can email somebody across another continent today, and they can read it today. You know? That's amazing. Uh, but email has some limitations, it's not as personal, I don't think. You know what I mean? You can't really, 
Maybe you're young and you think, you don't need, we don't write letters anymore, do we? Handwritten notes, it becomes very rare for us to get something written by hand, but that's much more personal. Uh, Linda and I, I don't know if you know this, my wife and I were high school sweethearts. So we met when we were 16 years old, and we're still together. Uh, it's going to be 37 years here uh, next week. And, uh, well, thank you. That's 37. But we knew each other seven years before that, so, uh, so really we've known each other 42 years. She still has a couple of the love letters I wrote her in 1975. She found them last night and pulled them out. You're not going to get to read them. Okay. Uh, how many times can you write the word love in one letter? But it's got my handwriting, you know, it's personal. I want you to remind you of something today. The, the words we're going to read out of the Bible today were originally a handwritten letter from the Apostle John to people in the first century in a place called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But they're very personal words. Listen to how John starts this letter in chapter 2. He says, My dear children, I am writing this to you. That's, there's affection in this. I, I want you to feel today love in this letter from, G, from uh, John to these disciples or followers of Jesus. And you know what? Because God chose to preserve these words that John wrote in his Bible, inspired him to write them using his own personality and feelings and style and so forth, but God inspired them. They're really, I want you to hear today that these words are heartfelt words from God himself to us. I am writing this, John says to you. And what he's referring to right now is everything he's written up to this point in the first chapter. And he began by reminding the people that he was an eyewitness of Jesus. Think about that a minute. We're reading words today from a man who walked with Jesus. He walked with him. He ate with him. He camped out with him. He saw the miracles that he did. He saw the compassion he had for people when he'd walk up to a leper and touch him. He touched a leper. Nobody does that. He was at Mary's side when Jesus was crucified. And Jesus said to him, John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your, your son. Take care of her, John. And he saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's who we're hearing words about. And what he, this letter, what, how John began it, he said at the beginning of this letter, I want to write to you about this one I was an eyewitness of. He's the word of life. He loves using this description of Jesus as the word. It sounds strange to us, but words communicate, don't they? I'm communicating to you today through words. And you're hearing those words and those thoughts, or you're processing what I'm saying to you. John is saying he's like, all of his life is a word. <laughs> like the summation of every word that could be possible about life. Life, how to live it here on earth, and how to have life eternal. He's the word of life, he says. God so loved this world that he gave us his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but have what? Eternal 
life. That's why he came. And John goes on in that first chapter. He says, now listen, here's what you need to know why, Je- why Jesus came. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. In fact, the Bible says, and it's hard for us to understand, that he can't even be in the presence of darkness. He has to judge darkness. And so, right away, John says, we're not like that. (laughs) We have sin in our lives. In fact, John says, anyone who says they don't have sin, anyone here never sin? (laughs) Keep those hands down. (laughs) He says, "If you're self-deceived if you think that. And you know, sin separates us from God. And he says, you could never be in his presence. But the good news is that if we confess our sins, John writes, and believe in his son, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. That's what moved me today. And so he continues his letter with these words. Now remember, when you look at your Bible, we're starting in chapter 2, obviously. Those chapter and verses weren't there when he wrote the letter, okay? We have added those uh, after the fact so that it's easy for us to locate things and so forth. But when John wrote this letter, it was one handwritten letter all the way through. But at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I am writing this to you, all the things that I explained so far in, in the beginning of my letter, so that you will not sin. Now, wait a minute. Pastor, he just said that if any of us claim to not have sin... <laughs> We're self-deceived. Now he says, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. But what he is trying to tell us here is that our attitude towards sin should never be that we should accept it as inevitable. Since it's going to be present in our lives, we should never say, okay, I'm going to sin anyhow, so God's gracious, I'm just going to sin, you know? Or have the attitude of, I might as well sin. I'm just going to sin, but then I'm going to ask God to forgive because if I confess my sins. Friends, those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus should never have that attitude. In fact, walking in habitual sin, walking in habitual sin should never be the trajectory of our lives. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. Sin is the enemy. Sin leads us out of God's light. It steals our joy. It destroys our fellowship with God and each other. I like what uh, Jerry Bridges has written in a book called The Discipline of Grace. He writes this, Our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. When we sin, it's a burden to us if we know God. That's our attitude to it. I hate that when I do that. I hate it in me. God, forgive me. It's not like, oh, it's, this is so nice, and I'll just, you know, God's gracious. When I play the piano, I got, I got to tell you, it is my aim to play the right notes. <laughs> As a musician, I'm not trying to just play anything, you know? It's, I practice, I work, I don't always play the right notes. You may not have heard them today, but I missed a few things. <laughs> And the band kind of covered it up a little bit. And, uh, oh, I played that class wrong chord. You didn't hear it. Okay. (laughs) But God never misses it when we sin. 
But my aim is always to play the right notes. <laughs> our trajectory, the trajectory of our lives, if you're a believer in Christ, should always be holiness. That's your aim. You're going to miss from time to time, John says, when you do confess. But, that, but the thrust of your life is, I want to obey God. But having said that, when we do sin, John says this in verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. I love that. If you do sin, John says, we have an advocate. That word is paraclete. John alone uses that Greek term in the New Testament. He does it four times in his gospel, where that paraclete, is, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. It literally means a helper who is called alongside of us. And he, he uses that word referring to the Holy Spirit. But here he uses it for Jesus, saying, Jesus is our advocate, the one who's called alongside of us, and he's a counsel for the defense <laughs> when you sin. When I was a kid, the most famous uh, lawyer show, and there have been thousands, right, uh, was Perry Mason. So uh, I don't know if I can do this or not. I didn't pray. But when this song came on, If you remember that, you're old. <laughs> but when that came on, that was Perry Mason, you know, and uh, he, he never lost a case. And as the defense attorney, it was his job to argue the case on the merits of the defendant's case, okay? So um, usually he was defending someone who was innocent but had falsely been accused of a crime. And by the end of the show, he had somebody breaking down on the stand. Oh, I did it. I did it. It was kind of phony, but, you know, it's, who was not the defendant. But listen to what John says in this text. It's not like that with how Jesus defends us. Look at verse 2. He says, Jesus, he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. <laughs> John is not arguing that Jesus defends us before the Father on the merits of our case, <laughs> our righteousness, our goodness, for in fact, we're guilty. <laughs> he's arguing, he's saying, the merit of the case for the Christian is on the advocate. <laughs> All the merit belongs to him. Jesus pleads our case because he says, I am the righteous one and I have offered my righteousness and my life as a substitute for them. And that's how he argues his case. The words sacrifice that atones in this verse, or your, your uh, translation may say, atoning sacrifice, or if you have the ESV version, it says propitiation. That word propitiation, and this, the, the meaning behind the Greek is, it's a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. It satisfies his wrath. God is holy, and he can't let sin go unpunished. And Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He himself, he's not under the penalty that we're under. 
He never sinned. Nobody else can atone for sins but Jesus because he alone is the righteous one. He's not under the penalty that we deserve. He willingly offers himself as a sacrifice and the wrath of God can be satisfied. It's not like God is just sweeping the sins under the rug and saying, okay, it's okay, I love you. He's too righteous for that. He's too holy for that. He can't do that, but what he can do is, I'll allow my son, who never sinned, to be your substitute, and I will judge him for the sins you committed. Can I ask you something this morning? Is Jesus your advocate? Some people try to defend themselves. That's not even a smart thing to do here, is it? Some people don't want to get a lawyer. They, I'll defend myself. Usually the defense goes something like this. I've lived a good life. However you would count that. But friends, that defense will not hold up before a holy God. No pastor, no pope, not the Virgin Mary, no Bible study leader, no husband or wife can ever serve as your advocate. Because we're all under the same penalty our sins deserve. You know, in Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of Christians. Let's kind of keep this courtroom theme for a second. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, the one who stands, he's pictured standing before the throne of God accusing them. Day and night, it says. He would be like the prosecuting attorney who's trying to build the case against us. And to be very honest... He has a case. I could picture him saying, God, Jim is a sinner. And he deserves to be punished for his sins. That's true. I can picture Jesus my advocate standing to my defense Father Jim has sinned but Jim came to me when he was a boy he confessed his sins he asked me if I would be his savior if I would be his advocate. And so, Father, my atoning sacrifice has been applied to his life. And I've clothed him in my righteousness. You see why it's right that, to, to come to a service like this and with all of your heart praise the Lord? There's a song we sometimes sing. It has the words, Why should I gain from his reward? It was God's, it was Jesus' reward. 
He's the one that perfectly obeyed. He's the one that never sinned. He's the righteous one who deserves to be in heaven and in the glory of heaven. But why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Do you know him? Was there ever a time in your life you confessed to him that you were a sinner and that you needed you need him as your advocate and your savior? Do you know for certain that that's true? Because that's where John goes from here in the letter. He says to the the people that he writes to, you know, I want you to be certain about this. This isn't something in life that we should have questions on. This is too important a matter. (laughs) We shouldn't be wondering, am I saved? Am I not saved? You know, well, John gives a a way that, one of the ways, he's going to give two in his letter, but the first way that we can know for certain, he outlines in verses three through six. Let me read them. He says, and we can be sure, listen, (laughs) we can be sure that we know him, God, if we obey his commands, commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey his commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. (laughs) There it is. He says, you can be sure that you really know God if you obey God's commandment. It's like a test that reveals what's really in your heart. When I was a piano performance major in college, the way we were graded, because a big part of my uh, hours was taking private piano lessons with my prof. And uh, at the end of the semester, I would have to appear before a jury (laughs) of the piano faculty, and I would have to perform whatever pieces of the classical literature that I had been working on that semester. It was a test that would reveal if I had made progress and truly knew the repertoire. And John is saying there's a test that will truly reveal whether you're a Christian or not. It's if you obey what God has said, if you follow his commandments. Now, he's not talking about obeying perfectly. Okay? Obviously, none of us can do that. Every true believer sins, and we must confess our sins. So if you put it in the context of his teaching, he's not talking about sinless perfection, but he's talking about, again, a desire to obey. In verse 4, look at what it says. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commands, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Well, tell me how you really feel, John. I mean, that's direct. He says that someone who truly knows God should have a consistent way of life that is characterized by obedience. And verse 5 even brings us into deeper focus. Look at it. But those 
who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Oh, but those who obey God's word show how completely they love him. See, that's getting to the heart of what it means to obey. The word, the Greek word translated obey God's word literally means to hold fast, to treasure in one's heart. I love the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119 over and over again. You could take many verses, but here's one. He says, your statutes, he's speaking to God, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. You see, obedience is not just an outward act. It's not an external conformity alone. It's, that's part of obedience to the commands of God. It's, it must be accompanied by an inner motivation that says, I love God and I want to obey him. I love his law because if he tells me something, it's, it's for my best. I love him. I want to follow him. We don't obey because we have to or because we need to. I have to obey. I may not go to heaven. I obey because... I really want to. You've heard many times the, the analogy of the child who is disciplined and the parent says, you have to sit down in that chair till I say you can get up. And they sit down and they say, well, I may be sitting down on the outside. But I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> You've probably heard that. Well, that's kind of the way... That's, is that obedience? Is that the, is that the spirit? No. And we don't obey because we're trying to earn our salvation because we never could. We're obeying because Jesus has earned our salvation and we love him for doing that for us. And so there's a heart that says, I want to obey him. We just sang in our song, yes, living, dying, let me bring. What that means is I'm living in this world but dying to myself let me bring a solace, a comfort from this spring, this source of, of, of uh, truth, that he who lives to be my king once died to be my savior. <laughs> this pattern of obedience, John says, is, uh, can be characterized by the words living in him. Verse 6 says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. <laughs> Again, could we ever duplicate the sinless purity of Christ as we walk on this earth? Of course not. But we must imitate Jesus. Those who love him, if you love him. Imitate his behavior. Imitate who he is. Uh, Howard Hendricks was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He once said this, May God deliver us all from trafficking in unlived truth. So why don't we close just thinking of three ways we can obey Jesus and imitate him. And I'll close. First of all, Jesus' life, was de he demonstrated in his life humble obedience. The scripture says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Bible says that Jesus always did the will of his Father, always. 
Pride is a terrible thing. Pride will keep you today from making any changes in your life. You may need him to be your advocate today and may be too proud to come to him. You may be a Christian whose life has drifted and you're not imitating him because you become proud. Don't let pride keep you today. Humble yourself. God lifts up people that are humble. God will help you today if you're humble. The Bible says if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If God is speaking to you today, it's not the quality of my sermon. It's the power of his spirit. Receive it as such. God loves you. Be humble enough to follow him today. Secondly, Jesus' life demonstrated Holy Spirit dependence. <laughs> Just want to read a few verses of Luke to you. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Later on, Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You know, Christianity, someone has said, is hopeless without the Holy Spirit. You know, we need the Spirit. And that, the way we obtain the Spirit in being able to be controlled by Him is we yield to Him. Sometimes daily, I found myself saying things like this, Lord, that attitude isn't right. That thought wasn't right. Lord, I yield that to you. Forgive me. Now come and fill me with your spirit. Let your spirit control me. Because when the spirit comes, he fills us with what? Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you need that, those kind of things? <laughs> I sure do. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's God, but he's God in the flesh. He's, he's a human being. And he walked in his humanity in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And look at the last verse. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I love that. Jesus prayed. Let's imitate him. Let's pray. Do you know, uh, I think we, we make prayer too complicated. Do you know sometimes you, can, you don't even have to utter words to pray? God can see in your tears your soul's cry for him. <laughs> prayer is never just a matter of the right words. You know, some people hear, you know, you may not come to prayer. I don't know how to pray. I don't pray out in front of people. Well, I'm so sorry that the church has made it seem like there's some special way that you have to do this. Because prayer is never about the eloquence of words or the way it's put together. That's not prayer. Prayer is a soul that from the depths of their soul cry out, Oh God, I need you. Help me. Lord, I don't know what to do. My brother-in-law, Jimmy, uh, who went to be with the Lord almost two years ago, uh, it, toward the end of his life, had many issues with uh, dialysis, and he had to see many doctors. He had to have uh, his 
fistula, is that what it's called? I don't know what it's called. I'm not a doctor. But anyhow, they had to, they had to expand it, you know, and stuff. And I remember taking him to his appointment. He'd be so worried. And, and uh, he never said, and now, let us pray. We're just driving. Lord, I'm scared. Would you help me? You can pray like that. And lastly, Jesus' life demonstrated a compassion for others. <laughs> Always. Compassion for others. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And listen, so what did he do? He began teaching them many things. It's as if he looked at people and said, you know what? They have no one to kind of tell them about God and how do you really live for him and how you really can receive from him. They don't have a... What does a shepherd do, right? It leads the sheep to the green pastures where they can eat and the shepherd leads the sheep to where they can drink. And he looked at people and he said, these people don't have anybody to help them spiritually. Nowhere to go. The religious leaders weren't doing it. They had their own kind of club for themselves. In fact, they separated themselves from people because they thought they were better than them. Friends, let's not. Let's imitate Jesus, you know, in having compassion for people. There's people all around us who need to know that God loves them. Walked over to my next door neighbor, uh, who's a Buddhist. I don't think he practices, but we've been building a relationship. He knows I'm one of the pastors here at the church. But I just wished him a happy Father's Day. He uh, he, he has almost a one-year-old child now, and we just talked a little bit. Like I saw him out watering his uh, flowers. We got home, and and so I just went over and said, "Hi, David. How are you? And how's your family? How's the baby?" And we just talked a little bit. I didn't, you know, I didn't go into propitiation with him. But I'm praying, God, have compassion on David and Lynn, his wife. And we start to, part of compassion is you start by having somebody over for a barbecue. Or you generally are concerned for people. They're not, people aren't some kind of notch on belts, you know, for... Oh, I say, I, I witnessed to that one, or I witnessed to that. It, it's kind of like people are people. Have a good friend who said the later in life he's, he's gotten, he's less concerned about organizations and more concerned about people. And that's a, that's a good way to live. Be concerned about people. And he also took care of their physical needs. One day he'd been teaching, and that's the second reference there. He said, I have compassion for these people. They've been with me three days. They have nothing to eat. And of course, you know what happened after that. Friends, we're closing the service today. This would be a wonderful day to make a change in your life if God's calling you to that. If you've never made him your advocate, would you be willing to say today, Jesus, I confess to you my sins. I agree with what you have said about them. I might think I'm a pretty good person, but it's very apparent what, that sin is so serious to you that you sent your son. Or perhaps today you said, I'm, I'm just not really 
imitating Jesus well. I've drifted from many things. Maybe today you'd say, Jesus, I confess that. Would you get me back to speaking to you from my heart in prayer? Would you help me to, to seek your spirit and the help that he can give me in walking daily with you? Would you just be willing to say, Lord, I need you? So in these closing moments, we're going to sing a song that says that, but however you would want to respond to God, would you please do that? Do it because you love him. Because he came and gave his life for you. We're not skilled to understand everything. <laughs> but I know one thing. There's one in heaven who stands, who is my Savior. Is he yours? Father, I love you today. I love these people. Thank you for the blessing of being here. I pray even in these moments, you would break down our pride that would keep us from you. I think there's an application for every one of us in this room today, myself included. Give us grace to admit that today and come to you. In Jesus' name I pray.